Author Bill Bryson once said of travel, I can't think of anything that excites a greater sense of childlike wonder than to be in a country where you are ignorant of almost everything. In 2014, the AMSSM launched the International Traveling Fellowship Program, exchanging its first group of physicians with Australia. Since that time, exchanges have taken place with South Africa in 2015, Italy in 2016, and later in 2017, the fellowship will travel to the UK. The program was created to encourage academic interchange and share research and exploration of common clinical interests with other sports medicine leaders throughout the world. The experience includes the opportunity to view live patient encounters, tour sports medicine facilities, share cases, and spend time with regional experts in sports medicine. To tell us more about this program are the 2014 junior fellows, Dr. Irf Asif and Chad Asplin, and senior fellow, Dr. Jim Puffer, as well as the 2015 junior fellows, Dr. Allison Brooks, and Jim McDonald, and Senior Fellow, Doug McKegg. Welcome, everybody. My name is Chad Asplund. I'm uh, the Director of Sports Medicine and Associate Professor of Health and Kinesiology at Georgia Southern University in Statesboro, Georgia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Irfan Asif. I'm in the Greenville Health System. I'm currently the Vice Chair for Academics and Research and also the Sports Medicine Fellowship Director. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Allison Brooks. I'm an associate professor in uh, sports medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. James McDonald? Yeah, hi. I practice uh, pediatric sports medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and my academic appointment is through Ohio State, where I'm an associate professor. Great. And finally, Doug McKay? Yes, I'm a professor of family and sports medicine at the Oregon Health Sciences University in uh, Portland, Oregon. Jim Puffer, President and Chief Executive Officer of the American Board of Family Medicine and Professor of uh, Community and Family Medicine at the College of Medicine at the University of Kentucky. Jim Puffer, set the stage for the 2014 trip. Australia is a massive country. First of all, where did you travel? And secondly, give us a few highlights of the clinical, research, and sideline settings on your itinerary. Well, we started off uh, in Melbourne, uh, Australia. Uh, we uh, were hosted there by Peter Bruckner and uh, had uh, three wonderful days uh, in that uh, city uh, visiting uh, Peter's uh, private practice uh, as well as uh, affiliated uh, facilities. Uh, we had the opportunity to um, uh, watch some uh, Australian rules football and uh, learn uh, about some important cultural uh, highlights of Melbourne. We moved on then uh, to Canberra, which is the uh, the capital of Australia, and uh, spent some uh, time there uh, at the uh, uh, their Olympic Training Center, learning a little bit more about uh, the care and training of uh, Olympic athletes. And uh, finally ended up in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, where we had the opportunity to uh, uh, witness uh, university-based uh, uh, delivery of uh, sports medicine and uh, cover some uh, uh, rugby uh, with uh, Aussie rules football with um, – um, uh, at the college setting. That sounds fantastic. Doug McKegg, that's a hard act to follow. 
but tell us about the South Africa itinerary. Where did you spend your time in the country, and what did you see specifically from a sports medicine standpoint? We had the opportunity of doing similar types of things, more of an educational academic exchange. Our uh, trip was was divided into two parts. Uh, we spent uh, the first half of the trip in uh, in South Southern Af or so South Africa, uh, just a little bit north of Cape Town, in a place called Stellenbosch, which is uh, right in the middle of uh, the South African uh, wine country. We had an opportunity to see the University of Stellenbosch to deal with uh, Pierre Bibiers, and uh, who uh, was our host there who treated us royally, and uh, we had the opportunity of seeing what a, what a major university and what they're doing with sports medicine there. Had a chance to engage with a number of presentations with, the, uh, with the, both the junior and the senior fellows. Uh, we then moved on up to uh, Pretoria, where we were, we interacted with the University of Pretoria and the faculty there. Uh, this is a little bit uh, bigger university, much more sports oriented, and uh, had the opportunity of uh, once again interacting with all the faculty there. And we capped most of this off with a safari uh, up in a place called Plattenberg. Plattenberg, and the junior fellows will correct me when I'm wrong on these things. Uh, but uh, we had the opportunity of uh, spending a couple of days at a, a safari ranch, I guess is what you'd call it, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed ourselves there. That sounds great. Both South Africa and Australia have a publicly and privately funded medical care system. James McDonald, what were some of the challenges and successes you saw in South Africa in the delivery of high-quality sports medicine care? Um, let me frame that slightly try to get at that by also um, saying one of the wonderful things we got to do when we were down there was see how um, South Africa is trying to address the exercise piece of sport and exercise medicine and some of the challenges of trying to um, bring the concept of exercise as medicine to uh, a country that has just such a wide variance of um, cultural differences, economic differences. Um, so much of the country is rural, so much of the country is urban, so much of the country is wealthy, but a vast majority of it is very poor. And to, uh, we, we spent one afternoon working with um, primary care doctors um, at the University of Pretoria, sort of a workshop in discussing how exercise medicine could be applied intelligently uh, to people who may have as their whole day um, merely just trying to get to and from work and, and cook meals for their children. Um, South Africa has its same challenges as the United States with uh, a burden of disease. I mean, they have their own ob obesity epidemic and sedentary uh, lifestyle epidemic. Um, and uh, we certainly had no answers, but it was a wonderful experience chatting with colleagues about shared challenges and maybe providing different perspectives. But as most of the most of the interactions like this, we probably learned a lot more than we gave. Um, so that, that's the biggest thing that I, it occurred to me as far as a 
uh, a challenge. It was it was the it was the exercise piece of sport and exercise medicine that I wanted to speak to. I think in some places, uh, people like you mentioned or referred to spend a lot of time just trying to get from point A to point B. So they may be maybe walking miles to get to a school, to a hospital. That in and yep. of itself, obviously, is exercise. But is there a culture yep. of exercise for recreation or exercise for health? So, again, you know, in two weeks, you probably only scratch the surface. And so I may be walking away from, you know, a very um, half-formed uh, perspective. But I think, you know, again, like we might see in the United States, there's definitely um, a segment of the population, many of whom we got exposed to, who, I mean, exercise plays a very important uh, part of their life. It, I mean, it ranges from the elite athletes we interacted with where they they take their sport very seriously in South Africa. They have many elite athletes. Um, it, it ranges to uh, people like busy doctors who just, they like to hike, they like to go uh, do their CrossFit down there too. Um, Alice and I hiked up and down uh, Table Mountain. Uh, if you live in Cape Town, you certainly get a lot of outdoor activity if you're, uh, if you're, if you're so motivated and have the resources and the time. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, what, what we couldn't see in what I'd love uh, in, in the ongoing collaborations that we, we will have with our colleagues to see more over time is how is sports uh, medicine in, uh, applied to, say, high school athletes? Um, we got exposure to a lot of elite athletes. We got exposure to the university athletes. But the the young kids, for instance, I don't know. I, I still need to learn more about that in, in South Africa, and I'm looking forward to doing that over time. Thank you. Irf Asif, what did you observe in the delivery of high-quality sports medicine care in Australia? Um, yeah, so one of the things that, that we observed was how they train sports medicine physicians in Australia. So in the United States, we probably have about 150 sports medicine fellowship programs of which we train 230 sports medicine, sports medicine fellows per year. Um, in Australia, it's very different. They have a uh, sports and exercise medicine program that's actually a four-year program, not just a one-year program as in, as in the United States. And they, and this actually produces four to six new sports medicine physicians each year. So in total, there are approximately 120 sports physicians in all of Australia. Um, and I, so I found that to be very different than what we have here in the United States. Controls for population. Do you think that that's a pro, a con, somewhere in between? I can see both upsides and downsides to having a more limited number of those physicians. Uh, that level of training seems to be somewhat, uh, I guess, I'm not going to say higher, but different. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think what that allows for is the the people who are training get exposed to probably uh, more elite-level athletes, and that's a staple of their training program, uh, which for us, there are only so many elite-level athletes within all of the U.S. So um, I found that to be, again, uh, quite fascinating on how they train people. They still, as... Uh, uh, James mentioned earlier, they still have a big exercises medicine component within their training. One of the uh, intriguing things that we were able to do in Sydney was to uh, be part of a program called an Exercise as Medicine 
where sports medicine and cardiology come together that was hosted by John Orchard. And that included a number of things, including uh, sports cardiology, concussions, heat illness. But Adrian Bauman, who is uh, one of the leading thought experts in physical inactivity, he actually works with the uh, World Health Organization. He happened to be uh, there as, as, as one of the presenters. And so we were blessed with not, over, not only being able to learn from um, Peter Bruckner, Peter Fricker, and John Orchard, but we ran into people such as Adrian Bauman and even others in sports cardiology that enhanced our, our ability to, to learn from the Australians. Both countries have been producing high-quality sports medicine research for decades and are seen as world leaders in this regard. Erp, I think you alluded to this a little bit, but Chad Asplund, can you tell us what do you think makes Australia such a fertile ground for such research? Well, I think the um, the the way that they are reimbursed and the way that sports medicine care is funded in Australia allows it to be a little bit different. Also, as Earth alluded to, they have a much fewer number of sports medicine physicians throughout the country, so. Um, more people can have more opportunity, or fewer people have more opportunities to do some of the important research. And at the Australian Institute of Sport or their Olympic Training Center, the Australian national athletes um, have pretty much everything they can study be studied on them from age 16 once they're identified into the national sporting program. Uh, throughout their sporting career. And their Olympic Training Center is funded with taxpayer dollars, government funds, as opposed to our Olympic Training Center, which is funded with sponsor dollars. And so they have a steady, consistent stream of money uh, within the Australian Institute of Sport to fund research and to really try to look at ways in which they can improve their uh, Olympic sports movement. And so I think. That was one of the things. The other part, um, and we talked a little bit earlier about you know, sort of the health system, but they have a, a two-tiered health system where everybody in the country has access to health care. They call it Medicaid uh, or public health care and then can opt in for private care. But most of what the physicians did, um, they were reimbursed more on a salary basis with some additional funds coming in for private practice stuff, but had a different reimbursement setup than what we're used to in the U.S., where most of our salaries come through work workload, RVU-type credit, and research is really done on our own time. And while in our academic institutions, it's encouraged, if not uh, required, um, very few of us are actually funded by our departments to do the research and so I think the fact that they're funded through the government to do this research um, allows them um, the ability to do more more research um, than we could do in, in the U.S. Thank you. Allison Brooks, how is sports medicine research being driven in South Africa, and what could we learn from their experience? Well, I think um, one of the things I enjoyed about being there was, was meeting um, people like Martin Schmalnitz and John Patricios, who really have done a lot of great 
work. I mean, I think John, Dr. Patricios, who was who was our host um, in Johannesburg, we had a chance to visit his clinic one day and um, spend some time with him at the uh, um, SASMA, which is the, the South African Sports Medicine Association um, Congress. And I think um, physicians like him, who've been very active clinically, like in South African rugby, I think have really driven a lot of what we know about um, concussion and, and how to manage manage it. And I think South Africa, um, through through some research in the sport of rugby, have really um, made some really impactful changes in the sport of rugby in terms of changes to rules for the for the scrum and um, and their box smart smart program has really um, I, I think is an example of, that we should all be striving for in terms of, um, you know, a, a governing body and a concussion education program really changing things in a sport. And I would say, you know, some of our professional sport organizations here, like the, the NHA, NHL and the NFL, are really well behind kind of where South African rugby is with their, their box smart program. And then our experience um, getting to both speak as well as um, be in the audience at the SASMA Congress was a great opportunity to hear some of their um, other leaders in, in uh, research, and in particular, Martin Schmalmus presented some really fascinating research on the Comrades Marathon, which is their largest um, uh, marathon, and uh, Jim may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like twenty or 30,000 participants. It's an extremely large uh, marathon, yeah. and so they have... Yeah, they have a lot of the same experiences or, or challenges that we have here with sort of mass participation events in terms of, um, you know, the number of people who start, who show up at the start line and then um, end up into trouble in trouble and end up in the medical tent or needing needing transport for um, needing transport. Um, so I, you know, I really um, he's really one of the leaders right now. I would say in terms of trying to evaluate how can you better educate runners before an event like that? How could you get them to some degree sort of self-screen themselves about whether they, you know, should do not start themselves in terms of if they've been sick or they're training or, um, and so I think um, just like, you know, a lot of our um, colleagues here in the United States, like uh, Bill Roberts would be sort of the person who comes to mind who, you know, was the medical director of the Twin Cities Marathon you know, was seeing firsthand in the medical tents kind of the problems that were arising and then using that as an opportunity to, to do really amazing research kind of right there in the real world setting. And then, so I would say they have similar opportunities to study um, um, clinically important, very relevant um, uh, things right right there in the real world uh, setting, certainly um, in sort of master participation events, but also at some of those elite levels of sport, like with their uh, their uh, South African rugby. The South African Box Smart Rugby Program is well known to some of our listening audience, but Doug, can you give us a brief description of the program? Well, I would. Uh, the The program is interesting because it's not, of course, based on colleges. It's based upon areas and in, in and basically, uh, various towns end up supporting or cities end up supporting their rugby teams. And what happens is, and I think this is also true in Australia, but what happens is a, a town like uh, like Pretoria will have youth programs 
that start at a very young age, and they all represent Pretoria or a particular part of Pretoria, and they move on up the scale until the, the very top of it, which is their pro or semi-pro team, if you will. So, the uh, the of course the cream on the on the on the top of the cake is when you make the national team. And uh, as luck would have it, the year that we were there, the uh, the world championship of uh, rugby was being played. South Africa was a very major part of it. So. Many of the people that we met, we went behind the uh, the uh, scenes at uh, at uh, a number of rugby team uh, practices, and these are facilities that are really well built up. They have their own training program, they have their own cafeteria, obviously their own locker rooms and their own headquarters. So it might look similar to a complex that we would have at a large big time university here in this country, but it's all sponsored locally, if you will, and that's their that's their their big deal. So I I'm uh, I, I'm impressed by the fact that the colleges that we visited, at least, while they had rugby programs, the big time programs were sponsored by by a specific area, and uh, their their uh, accommodations and their their facilities were absolutely outstanding. I can remember in in Stellenbosch, we we took a look at theirs, which was a university program, but their rugby uh, uh, program, obviously the biggest thing in town, but uh, their rugby tro- program overlooked the mountains behind Stellenbosch. Absolutely gorgeous sight, just an absolutely gorgeous sight. So. It's it is different in a way they don't they don't have quite as many big time programs if you will but that's really a relative term they they still get be behind all of their local teams and uh, you know you'll see you'll see uh, youngsters representing Pretoria and then you'll see semi pros so it's it's pretty interesting. May I just add something to that? Uh, I wanted to echo something Doug, Doug was just saying. So, again, I mean, I want to, uh, this is an echo of what Doug was saying, the the emphasis on the local. And um, Foxbart, which is a you know, national program, and in, in as Allison I said in her, I think in her um, comments, is internationally recognized. I mean, you know, I think probably each one of us had heard of Boxmart at you know, our AMSSM, ACSM meetings. I mean, long before I went to South Africa, I'd heard of Boxmart. One of the things I remember um, John Patricius talking about was it just seemed just remarkable to me that they have, I understood, right, they have like a um, like a spine line. You can imagine almost like a 24-hour call-in. Like you could be in the most rural outpost dealing with just schoolboy rugby and someone goes down and you're a coach or referee and you're not sure quite what's happening with a catastrophic head or spine injury, you can call in. I mean, a little bit like in the, the only thing I know of in the United States like that is the Diver Alert Network. When I, I used to practice in California, and I occasionally would call into this line in North Carolina and talk through what I was seeing and wondering, you know, these, is this, you know, is this an embolism, you know, or what, what's going on here? Is this decompression sickness? Um, they've got that. 
and and then also I believe they've almost it's like a na- developed a national registry that all of these events around the country need to submit a report to Boxmart so they can essentially do I think quality improvement and you know that, that look back at if there were any errors made and and do it better next time. It was really remarkable um, the, the, that aspect of Boxmart which I hadn't picked up from conference talks before. Uh, Jim, what do you feel are perhaps barriers of implementation of such a program for, say, American football in the United States? Having seen Boxmark, it seems like it's possible to have a large nationalized, somewhat centralized (laughs) program, for example, for head injuries. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you could say, you know, I don't know. It's almost I, I, I go back to also, I don't know how Boxmart's funded. So, Maybe I think, you know, a little bit of what Chad was saying earlier about Australia. It, it could be the barriers, I, I mean, imagine at least in part one of funding, probably in part the size of our country. You know, I think we struggle to develop national registries of any kind. I mean, I think, you know, everyone sitting on this line, you know, would love a national head, and, you know, catastrophic injury or concussion registry for that matter or sudden cardiac death. I mean, I think it's sort of, or miss in the United States. I, I, you know, again, I think it even it even goes to a larger level. Why is it so hard for us to organize national health in general in the United States? I mean, that's that's a rhetorical question. I, I think, Jim, I think yes, you sir. have also in this country you have competing interests. So, uh, you know, to get something nationally done is not only difficult but almost impossible. I think that's what you're saying. And, and uh, so you might have uh, injury registry somewhere in the south, and nobody in the in the northwest is going to think twice about it. It's it's as you're saying, it's just a lot of competing interests. That's all in our country. It, it sounds like a wonderful model, and uh, yeah, I think we could uh, stand to uh, uh, examine it very closely and see if we can implement something like that at least on a regional level, which I know some regional areas have done. Uh, the United States is a much larger country both geographically and uh, population-wise. Australia has adopted novel and sometimes even radical approaches to developing elite Olympic talent through its Australian Institute of Sport and Olympic Training Center. Jim Puffer, did you get a first-hand look at how the Institute approaches athletic performance, and what did you take away from what you saw? Well, I'm not so certain it's all that novel. Um, The U.S. Olympic Committee has actually had similar programs in place within most of their national governing bodies for for quite some time. I think the major difference, uh, however, is that um, uh, Australia, uh, as uh, Chad has already alluded to, has uh, terrific uh, funding, national funding for their Olympic Training Center and is able to do things at a a national level that... um, uh, we're somewhat constrained doing here in the United States. Um, the Australian Institute of Sport uh, in Canberra is a, uh, an absolutely tremendous facility. It's uh, it's very well designed. Uh, it's very well staffed, and uh, they do an absolutely tremendous not job of of not only identifying uh, athletes uh, who might excel at particular sports, but uh, most importantly, pursue um, a very evidence-based and scientific approach uh, to training. 
And I mean that not only from the standpoint of uh, the uh, physical aspect of training, but also the mental aspect of uh, training as well. So uh, while certainly the, the the programs for elite sport uh, in Australia bear, I think, uh, some resemblance to those in the United States. So the major difference would be that they're all well-funded by the government, where, as in the United States, um, almost all of our individual sports, um, while receiving some money from the U.S. Olympic Committee, are pretty much left to their own to cultivate other corporate sponsorships that allow them to uh, augment the uh, money that they may receive from the USOC. One specific example that I came across was for some of the uh, smaller winter sports where Australia has taken a little bit different approach. For example, for luge, they went out and they found what they thought would be in general, very good athletes at certain lifeguarding competitions and then took those athletes and started training them in luge later in life when they had already developed certain, say, motor skills, core strength, things like that. And so their argument was that you did not need to specialize at luge from a very young age to be successful at it. Did you see a difference in early childhood specialization for some of these sports in the Australian approach? No, I think um, the evidence would bear out that uh, early, you know, sports specialization uh, probably is not a, a very successful paradigm in in uh, guaranteeing success. It probably, uh, for the most part, guarantees a, a fairly significant uh, burnout rate uh, among those people who pursue that particular pathway to um, uh, to success. Uh, I would I would say that their process of uh, of identifying and selecting athletes, uh, both at the national level and and uh, at the national governing body level, are are fairly similar to most of the approaches that uh, are being taken by most of the national governing bodies in the United States. I uh, I really don't think there was that much difference between the way in which um, athletes were identified or uh, were trained. The major difference is that, uh, as has already been alluded to by Chad, is the the significant uh, infusion of federal dollars into their uh, national training center and the way that money is uh, then utilized by each of the specific sports uh, to best optimize uh, the way that they identify and train athletes. In the United States, the role of the athletic trainer and physical therapist are rapidly changing with an expansion of roles in education, outreach, clinical work, and even venturing into the operating room. Chad Asplund, how did you see athletic trainers and physiotherapists utilized in Australia? Well, I think one of the differences um, in Australia is there was a more clear delineation of what each um, part of the sports medicine team did. Orthopedic surgeons only did surgery. They didn't do any team coverage. As Earth alluded to, you know, the training process for sports physicians was different, but event and team coverage was provided by the sports physician. 
Um, we didn't have much interaction with athletic trainers while we were there, although we did interact with uh, the physiotherapists, and it seemed that most of the uh, elite-level Aussie rules football or rugby teams did have a physio and used them in both the way that we would use a physical therapist here as well as the same way that we would use an athletic trainer. And so the physiotherapist did most of the the day-to-day rehabilitation modalities and that sort of thing. What I really noticed was that there there was not a lot of um, competing interests or overlap between the surgeons, the sports physicians, and the physio it seemed that the um, everyone's role was better delineated in Australia than it is um, from what we see here in America. Yeah, we'll get to the interface between uh, primary care sports medicine doctors and orthopedic surgeons in a moment. But uh, James McDonald, I'd like to, I'd like to yeah. give you a chance. Uh, did you see any unique or novel deployment of ATCs or physical therapists in South Africa? As you're asking me this, I'm thinking about Allison, and, and I'm, I'm hoping she may chime in after I'm done here. But I think the thing that most uh, comes to my mind is that, um, as Chad just said, they, you know, the physiotherapist is uh, is used quite a bit um, on uh, in South Africa. Um, is very intimately involved with a lot of the elite athletes that we uh, met, and. They in South Africa, there's no athletic trainer, but they have somebody named a biokineticist. I mean, roughly as near as I could tell, the I believe if I, this is where I'm hoping Allison will correct me if I'm wrong. So I, I I thought the biokineticist was rather like our athletic trainers, and the physiotherapist rather like our our physical therapist. Um, and they had very delineated roles, but I all I can tell you is. Allison, Doug, and I would ask our hosts at, like, every stop, now tell me again about a biokineticist. What do they do? And we'd meet biokineticists, and I just, I, I, was, I was always puzzled, but the, the puzzlement was on my end in the sense of I'm trying to fit these people into roles that I know, but their name is entirely different than anything I've ever seen, and I didn't, I could, I had the hardest time getting a handle on the specifics there. Allison, do you yeah. remember? Yeah, this is Allison. I have something to add. Yeah, I, I would. I'm sort of chuckling because I was sort of exactly thinking about what you said, which was at, at the end of our trip, I still wasn't totally sure I understood the difference between the biokineticist and the, and the physio. But as best as I could understand it, the physiotherapist would would rehab a patient sort of the, in the early stages of their injury. So, like if you had an ACL reconstruction. The physiotherapist is who would get you up to the point where you're working on regaining range of motion, muscle strength, you know, some neuromuscular coordination. Um, and then then they would sort of hand that patient or that athlete off to the biokineticist who would sort of do the last stage of the sort of more functional sport-specific return to play is sort of best I could understand, which is certainly a different model than how our um, athletic trainers and physical therapists work here. And then my understanding is that biokineticists also, I guess I would almost say they were like also a blend of um, an an exercise scientist or or, 
physiologists, yeah. yeah, where they would also help people who were had who had diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease, and they were you know in cardiac rehab or using exercise as you know a treatment for a chronic disease, and so they definitely. Um, I agree, did, did not fit neatly into, into the roles that we sort of think of athletic trainers and um, physiotherap- physical therapists and exercise physiologists, but they, they were sort of a, a mishmash um, of all the, all the different um, providers that we interact with here in the United States. And there did seem to be a little less sort of clearly defined roles. I can remember a session that we went to at the SASMA conference where they were sort of hashing out in mostly a collegial way, but clearly there was some tension about, you know, what is the role of the physiotherapist and what is the role of the biokineticist and struggling with some of those, you know, whose role is what. And so it seemed like that was sort of less um, clear than it was maybe from what you saw in Australia. Jim Buffer, earlier you alluded to the mental aspects of sport performance. Can you describe how they're approaching sports psychology in Australia? Well, I think it's much more formalized, excuse me, than it is uh, in the United States. And I think it's primarily because they're so much better resourced uh, at the federal level. In the United States, certainly um, in in elite and um, certainly Division I athletics, I think uh, we've seen a lot of attention turned uh, to um, mentally preparing athletes. But uh, uh, I think it's much more formalized uh, in Australia, primarily because it's so well-funded. Certainly, uh, the professional teams in the United States uh, uh, enjoy similar uh, approaches at the Olympic level. It really depends, I think, on w- what each national governing body decides to do with uh, the money that they're given uh, from the USOC or uh, the additional monies that uh, they may raise from corporate sponsors. Uh, so I think it's a little bit more hit uh, or miss at the Olympic level, uh, and it's it's simply a it's a function of um, of resources and and funding. Um, if you're well resourced and and uh, can in, uh, certainly afford all of the bells and whistles, it's going to be much more likely that you're going to have uh, people that are dedicated to this than uh, if uh, you're not. 